Well, I told her I wouldn't plan a surprise party, but I didn't tell her I wouldn't do anything. This week she joins me on the other half of the Great Divide. And uh, I welcome her here, where life begins, right? People who know. <laughs> All right. All right, I'll pay for it later, but that's okay. That's okay. Have you noticed that we live in a world <clears throat> with a lot of signs and symbols? We could not communicate, really, without them. Today I want to talk about an important sign. It's the sign of the covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. But just to remind you how important signs are, just take a look at the slide up there this morning and, and see how we come to depend upon them. Hand signals, signs for professions, signs of uh, approval, disapproval, signs of what happens in your stock market account, hopefully, handshakes. By that symbolic act, we are saying that we agree together on this. We could not live without signs and symbols. Prehistoric drawings on cave walls, Egyptian hieroglyphics, the English alphabet, all of these involve the use of symbols to represent sounds or words. And that's what makes written communication possible. We have road signs that inform us where we are. Uh, tell us what the services are at the next exit, or how fast we can travel without meeting one of the law officers of that region. Sports officials use signs to communicate what's happening in the action. What does this mean? See, I didn't say that, but the symbol told you, or this. What about this? That's strike three. That's not a mic. That's <laughs> That's not a Michael Jackson imitation, that is strike three. <laughs> the fact is that God sometimes uses signs and symbols also to communicate with us. We see this in Genesis. Those of us studying Revelation together have seen it often in the book of Revelation, which is a book about many signs and symbols. Uh, today we're talking about uh, another one of the great signs that God gives regarding the end times in that particular class. The first time the word sign is used in the Bible is actually in conjunction with Cain, where it says in Genesis chapter 4, So the Lord said to him, Therefore whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, lest anyone finding him should slay him. More commonly, we're aware of the sign or the symbol that is found in Genesis chapter 9, the second time that the word sign is used in the Bible. It's the rainbow. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And so whenever we see the rainbow, we should be reminded that that is God's sign 
of his covenant with all peoples of the earth regarding not sending a flood again to the whole earth in judgment. <clears throat> that the rainbow is a covenant sign for all the nations of the earth. Likewise, with Israel, God gave a special sign of a different sort in the Sabbath, which became a symbol of that religious community of Israel and its covenant of the law that was made at Mount Sinai between God and Israel. That day of rest set them apart from the rest of the nations. It was a sign of who they were. Now, in our text this morning in Genesis chapter 17, we are going to see yet another kind of a covenant sign. This one in conjunction with the covenant with Abram. We see that in uh, verse 9. This morning I'm going to take a, a slice of this chapter and talk about it rather than talking about the whole chapter. But I'm going to begin reading in verse 9 where it says, God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant. I might just point out that there are really three speeches that God makes in this chapter. In the first one, he begins by saying in verse 4, As for me, and then in verse 9, the second speech, he says to Abraham, As for you, and then the third speech in verse 15 where he says, As for Sarai, your wife. Now he says to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. This is the covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, Thirteen years have passed since God's last appearance as the angel of the Lord to Hagar. Ishmael, who was born to Hagar and Abram, is now a teenager. God appears again to Abram. And he begins in this chapter, in this appearance, by giving to Abram a brand new name, by which Abram had not known God before. He says, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty, or I am Almighty God. From the Vines Expository Dictionary, we learn that El Shaddai served as the patriarch's covenant name for God and continued as such until the time of Moses when a further revelation took place and God gave another covenant name through Moses and that was the name what? Tell them that who has sent you? I am Yahweh, that I am has sent you. But for Abram, the name was not I am, it was Almighty God, El Shaddai. God Almighty revealed himself as a powerful deity who was able to perform whatever he asserted. The degree of intimacy between El Shaddai and the patriarchs at various stages shows that the covenant involved God's care and love for this growing family that he had chosen, protected, and prospered. 
Now, as we think about the covenant between Abram and God, let me just point this out in general, that a covenant is a good thing. Covenants are important to an ordered society. We could look upon the Declaration of Independence as a covenant among the 13 colonies to declare their independence from England. We could see the Constitution as a covenant among the states of the United States as to the powers that they are granting to the federal government and yet retaining some powers for themselves. Marriage is rightly looked upon as a covenant between a man and a woman. We employ covenants in business. When we sign the credit card slip, we are putting our name on a covenant that we will agree to pay. Organizations sometimes have covenants or agreements that declare their purpose, their values, and the responsibilities of the members of those organizations. It is not unusual for churches to establish covenants by which the members of the church also agree on certain mutual commitments to one another. God makes covenants, too. Covenants are a good thing. God makes covenants as he does here with Abram. In this covenant, he reiterates his promises to Abram. You will notice that he first, uh, or rather he does in verse 8, reiterate his promise regarding giving Abram and his descendants the land, but he inserts a new thought. He says, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. That's the first time, I believe, that God has said this to Abram. That this is an everlasting, this is an eternal, this is a forever grant of a piece of land to Abram and to his descendants. But first, God also had reiterated that he would multiply Abram's descendants exceedingly in verse 2. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. This is very similar language to what God had said to Hagar back in verse 10 of chapter 16. God now uses that same language with Abram himself. And he marks this occasion by changing Abram's name to Abraham. You see that in verse 5. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. You will be the father of many nations, father of a multitude. Abram means exalted father, which was a mockery of a name, really, to Abram uh, for most of his life because he had not fathered children. Now he has fathered Ishmael by Hagar, but that's the only child that he has. But God is now reiterating, I'm going to make you a father of a multitude, so I'm going to change your name. Likewise, he changed Sarai's name to Sarah, which means princess. It's really very little difference in meaning, but uh, the change is made nonetheless in verse 15. And uh, it is intended to mark this very special appearance of God. The name change 
in each case symbolizes the covenant that God is making with this family. But then God gives yet another sign or a mark of the covenant that he is making with Abram. The sign of the covenant with Abram is male circumcision. Now some of you will look at the slide and chick- and snicker a bit, that's all right. Have you ever tried to find in uh, your clip art a symbol for circumcision? So I put a band-aid up there. <clears throat> now this is a significant command that God gives, and it is significant that God gives this command after the birth of Ishmael, but before the birth of Isaac. It is because of what this symbolizes. And that's the question I want to talk about. What did circumcision symbolize as it is a sign of the covenant? This cutting away of the foreskin of the male reproductive organ is intended to show two things, separation and inclusion. And I want to talk about those. In the first place, the cutting away of the skin symbolized the cutting away of the defilement of the world. It is the removal or the separation of Abram and his family from association with the rest of the nations, which were all pagan. God is taking them out from the nations. He is separating them. He is cutting away from them that identity with the rest. At the same time, down through the generations, it became a sign of inclusion because it meant that these were included in the covenant of Abraham, that they were by this act included among the people of the covenant. And so, ideally at least, this sign became to those who practiced it a sign of faith in El Shaddai, in Almighty God, that he is the one who is able to keep his covenant with his people and do what he has promised. He is Almighty. And so those who believed the covenant obeyed the covenant sign. But that brings another question. And the question is, did this act of circumcision effect personal salvation. In other words, was every person who was circumcised by that act made a true believer in El Shaddai? The answer to that is no. That is not the case. Circumcision was an outward sign, an outward mark of faith in God's covenant with Abraham. But salvation does not come from outward marks or signs or actions. Salvation comes from an inward act of genuine trust in the promise of God. Salvation is the gracious gift of God, effected by believing God's promise. Abram is not made a believer at this point. He is a believer before this. 
Paul goes to great lengths in Romans chapter 4 to make this point. He wanted every one of his readers to know that Abram was justified before God before he was circumcised. That he had already believed God and was counted as righteous in the eyes of God long before this outward sign was given to him that was to symbolize that faith. Even in ancient days, more important than physical circumcision was the circumcision of the heart. And so the Lord says to his people in Deuteronomy 30, verses 5 and 6, And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. More important than the physical act was the circumcision of the heart, cutting away from the heart the defilement of sin. And that happens as one believes. Circumcision signified entrance into and belonging to the community of the covenant people, the descendants of Abram, through Isaac and Jacob. But salvation was still a heart decision to trust God's everlasting promise. And so therein lies the problem that developed. The ritual itself became the primary thing over time. People forgot or neglected the spiritual significance of the inward circumcision of the heart. That was lost as they continued to practice this physical rite of circumcision. And so they possessed the outward form but they had not the life of God. And uh, circumcision as a rite then became an issue even in the early church, as most of you are aware, as people were concerned about this outward rite rather than what happened spiritually inside. So did circumcision affect personal salvation? By this act was Abram saved? No. He was saved long before this by faith. There is no outward act, there is no religious rite that one can perform that will make him right with God. That happens only as the result of a heart decision to trust in the promise of God. Well, that brings me to a third and final question that I want to pose this morning. And it's this, does the new covenant have signs? Now let me define the new covenant. Let me explain that in case you're not sure what I mean. The new covenant is not the covenant that God made with Abram. It's not the covenant of Moses and the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. The new covenant is the one that is based upon 
the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. A sacrifice that was made once and for all. This covenant promises eternal life to all who will place their faith in the Savior who died on their behalf and who believe that he rose again from the dead on the third day. That is the new covenant. Does this new covenant have any signs associated with it? The answer is yes, it does. In fact, there are two signs, two symbols that we can point to that God has given us regarding this new covenant just as he gave circumcision of males on the eighth day as the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. The first sign that God gives to us of the new covenant is the Lord's table. The elements on the Lord's table are intended to be signs of what he did on the cross. They are symbolic. They represent his sacrificed body and his shed blood on behalf of the sins of the world. And that is why Jesus said, as he did with his disciples that night in the Last Supper, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. He says, this cup is the sign, it is the symbol of the new covenant. So every time that we gather and observe communion together, we are remembering by that sign, by that symbolic act, what Jesus has done for us. It is the sign to us of the new covenant. The second sign of the new covenant is that of believer baptism. Believer baptism. In fact, in the New Testament, baptism is correlated to circumcision in the Old Testament. Now, it's not an exact parallel, and I want to emphasize that. It is not an exact parallel. But there is a correlation, and I'm speaking of Colossians chapter 2, and you may want to turn to that text in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Because it is one of the major New Testament passages that shows the correlation between circumcision and baptism. Colossians chapter 2 verse 11, which says, And in him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now that last phrase means that Paul is here thinking of the death the, the cross death of our Lord Jesus Christ as though it were the act of circumcision. And our identity with him in that death is as it were to us circumcision of the heart. But there's an outward sign of this 
there is something that speaks symbolically to that inward act. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And so in this passage, there's a very clear correlation between the circumcision in Abraham's covenant and the baptism of the new covenant. A water baptism is an outward act, as was circumcision, that denotes the inward work of the Holy Spirit cleansing us from our defilement with the rest of mankind, our sin, and regenerating us, giving us new life, so that we are now a part of God's new community, the church of Jesus Christ. Water baptism is the outward act that pictures that. Now what is the tragedy? It is the same tragedy, in essence, that fell upon ancient Israel. It is that there are so many who think that they are Christians because of the outward acts of partaking in communion and being baptized. The Jews were convinced in ancient Israel that they truly belonged to Yahweh because they had been circumcised as young boys. But that was wrong. They had to believe themselves in order to truly belong to the living God. And how many people are there today in our world who think that they are Christians because of some outward act that they have done by going to Mass in the Catholic understanding of the Lord's table or partaking of communion or in being baptized. Now there are churches that have drawn an exact parallel between circumcision and baptism. Please stay with me here. They have drawn the exact parallel in the sense that they believe that you should baptize babies. And by that act of baptism, the child is brought into the, the covenant people of God, into the family of God. But that is not New Testament baptism. New Testament baptism is the baptism of the newly born again person. Not the person who's just newly born the first time. New Testament baptism is the baptism of one who believes. And by that is born again, not one who has been simply born of a mother and father. Believer's baptism, then, is the outward sign marking entrance into God's new community, the church. That is the symbolic meaning of it. It is a sign of the new covenant when one is baptized as a believer. By going through that sign, just as the males who were the descendants of Abram were circumcised to show that they belonged to that covenant, so one who is a believer 
in the promise of God today, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, shows that he has entered into God's new covenant people, his new community, the church, by being baptized. It is commanded of God, not at eight days of age and only for males. It is commanded of all men and women who believe. And it's to take place subsequent to the new birth, because that's when faith was placed in Christ. Baptism is the evidential sign that witnesses that one now is a part of God's new covenant family. That's why baptism is not an option. It is not an option for us. It is a command to obey. Now there's a warning. The warning is this, that baptism can become an empty ritual. Whether done with babies or done with adults, it can be just an empty, meaningless ritual of the the church as circumcision came to be in ancient Israel. Baptism as an outward act can be nothing more than that. But that's not what God commanded it to be. There's a, another warning that's related to that, and it's this, the baptism does not affect personal salvation. There are people who teach that today. Not only the baptism of babies bringing people into the family of God, but the baptism of people being necessary as an addition to their faith to bring them into the family of God. They believe in what's called baptismal regeneration. That you have to believe and be baptized in order to be saved. You see, that is a heresy that is uh, related back to what happened in the early church when they taught you had to believe and be circumcised in order to be saved. Only now it's believe and be baptized in order to be saved. So baptism does not effect personal salvation. But having given that word, let me say again, that it is the mark that God has given to us that is to be performed as an outward act to show that we are a part of his new covenant people in the world. When God appeared to Abram on this occasion, twice in this chapter, Abram falls on his face before God. He falls in his face before this one who is almighty God in awesome worship of the supremacy of this one who has appeared to him. And when the time came for him to follow the command that God gave him, he immediately obeyed and circumcised not only himself but his whole household. Without delay, without argument, he did what God told him to do. And the question I have for you today is this. Have you obeyed God, submitting to the sign of the new covenant? Have you obeyed God in baptism? Regarding the early church, it says, So then those who had received his word were baptized. 
It was not even an issue. It was not even a question in the early church. I remind you of the time that Philip was called by God to go down to the desert in Gaza to do one-on-one personal evangelism with a high government official from Ethiopia. God had already prepared the man's heart. He was reading the scriptures, Isaiah 53. When Philip drew near to his chariot, he invited Philip to come up into the chariot and to explain to him the meaning of this passage and who this was that died. And it says that Philip joined him and showed to him Jesus. And after he had done that, it's very interesting. The Ethiopian's first response was, Here is water. As they came along, they came to an oasis. He said, Here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? You see, immediately he knew that was the right thing to do. To show that he was no longer a part of the covenant of Israel. The Abrahamic covenant. But he was now a part of God's new community the believers in Jesus, the Messiah. And so Philip responded to him, If you believe with all of your heart, you may be baptized. And he said, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And with that, they stopped the chariot, and immediately the man was baptized to show that he was entering into this new relationship with Christ, and with Christ's church. There are some of you that have toyed with this and thought about it and wondered if you should and when you should or should you. And I want you to know today from what we have studied how important it is that you be baptized. It is hard to believe that one would be a genuine believer in Jesus Christ and refuse baptism because it is the very first mark of genuine discipleship, that one is genuine about his faith, that he follows Jesus in baptism, obeying this sign of the new community. No, it doesn't save. Yes, it can be an empty ritual. That's the error of it. But the truth of it is that Christ has appointed it and commanded it for all of those who claim to be Christ followers. I invite you to bow with me in prayer. After we've dismissed the service, I'm going to be standing here in the front, and again today I have a pad of paper. And if you have not been baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to come today and indicate that you are desirous of following the Lord in this command as a sign of the new covenant that you are a genuine believer in Jesus as the Christ. What prevents you from being baptized? If you believe, you may. Lord Jesus, I pray that today you will bring conviction on the hearts of any here who have believed and have not been baptized to follow through with that important command I also pray that if there be some friend here who's never become a Christian but may have gone through baptism or some other religious rite thinking that that was enough that you will show that 
friend, that one that you love, that he or she needs to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and commit their life to him in order to be saved. And so work in our hearts what needs to be done, either convicting or confirming that we belong to you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.